0: Well, good morning, good morning, welcome to our church, welcome to Grace Bible Church. I pray that you've been encouraged in the Lord this morning, that you are encouraged in the Lord. Uh, You know, I know that life, we prayed about it, we pray about it nearly on a weekly basis, but I know that life can be demanding and difficult, truly we can't hide from the trials of life, it doesn't matter who you are, you're not going to get out of this unscathed. Uh, you're not going to get out of it alive, and you're not going to get out of it unscathed. And we can't hide, hide from the trials of life and the difficulties. My, truly, my heart goes out when I see one or more of you going through trials. If you're new to us, you may not be fully aware, I'll make, I'll make a connection in a minute, but you may not be fully aware that we're committed to the four pillars of our philosophy of ministry. We're committed to the exaltation of God, we're committed to the exposition of Scripture, we're committed to equipping the saints and we're committed to evangelizing the lost. Uh, you may be wondering what this has to do with the trials of life. Well, I'm here to tell you it has everything to do with it. Uh, I just, just, just this past week, I was thinking specifically about the role of expository preaching. Well, this morning, we're continuing to look at Jesus' testing in the wilderness in Matthew 4, 1-11. In that text, in Matthew 4, we see how our Lord responded to this incredibly difficult testing, testing beyond anything that you or I will ever experience. Now, Satan came to tempt him to sin against the Father, but what Satan meant for evil purposes, God meant for good. God meant for good. That's Genesis fifty twenty. Now, Satan desired for Jesus to fall so that he could have full and unchallenged dominion over this world. But God... So Satan had, a, had an evil intention, but God intended to prove Jesus' worthiness. He used Satan's evil intentions to show that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. He proved that Jesus is worthy of that title. Again, you may be wondering, well, what does this have to do with my trials? What does it have to do with my trials? That's, well, that would be a fair question if you're asking that you will face difficulties in your walk with Christ. As I said, none of us will come out unscathed. Many times these trials have an evil intent behind them. Possibly you're struggling with sickness. Perhaps you've lost a loved one. Sometimes these things happen at the hands of evil men. Sometimes there's evil intent behind those things. Perhaps you've even been betrayed by someone close to you. It would be easy to succumb to the temptation to respond sinfully. That's the point. In the midst of our trials, it would be easy to respond with bitterness and with anger. You may even be angry with God and ask how these things could ever happen to you. You ever heard that? You ever heard someone be angry with God because something has gone wrong in their life? That they, something that they didn't expect? Something that they thought was, was wrong. And they become angry with, with the world, and they become angry even with God. But in James's words, in James 1.19 and 20, he says this, "...but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God." You see, the Lord wants us as we go through trials, as we go through difficulties, He wants us to respond in patience, recognizing that our anger achieves nothing but sin. We need to see that God doesn't tempt us to evil, but He does use our trials, He does use the difficulties of life to to test us, to reveal our hearts. He tests us to reveal our faith. If our faith then is a dead faith, looking at James chapter 2, if our faith is a dead faith, he uses the test to reveal that our faith is a dead faith. Why do you think so many people leave the church when the testing comes? When the trials come, they leave because they were not of us. That's not always true. Sometimes it's because their faith is so weak that they, they end up leaving thinking that that's the best thing that they can do, to get away. If our faith is true, though, he uses the test to refine us. James 2.17 2, 17 said, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself, meaning that, that faith and works work together. Let me show you the tie to our current text in Matthew 4, 1-11, and that's what I want you to understand here is that we we preach we do expository preaching because we want to preach and teach the text because we believe that that is the best way for us to understand God's heart for us. Let me show you the tie to Matthew 4, 1-11. Jesus was in the wilderness and He was enduring great hunger and thirst. The devil came to Him and tempted Him to sin against the Father, yet God intended that test the, the devil intended it to be a, 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 a temptation, but God intended that test to reveal his faith. Whoa. Reveal his faith. Let me give you a principle here. And I want you to understand this. The greater your faith, the greater the trials. God will continue to refine you until the day of your home going. The greater the faith, the greater the trials. In Jesus' case, his faith was perfect. He had nothing lacking in his faith. His faith didn't need refining, in another, in another way to put it. So God's purpose for the trials was not to refine his faith, but to prove it and to reveal it. And God or Jesus perfectly responded to those tests, and it not only proved that He is the Son of God, it shows us how God uses trials and temptations, and, he, and it gives us a perfect model for how we are to respond to our own trials. James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, understood. He didn't understand at the time. no, he wasn't he, he wasn't even a believer at the time the Lord walked on the earth. But he came to understand. Listen to his words. It says this, Therefore, therefore laying aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in gentleness, receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What James is saying is that when we undergo the fire of trials and difficulties, we don't respond wickedly. How How would we respond wickedly? Well, in bitterness and anger. We're to lay aside those things and receive the word which is able to to save our souls. Using Paul's words in Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When you face trials on every side, here's how you are to respond. James 1.22 But become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now let me put all that together. I started up by bringing up the role started this out by bringing up the role of expository preaching, the, the philosophy of ministry. Let me put it this way: You and I, we, we need to know and we need to understand the Word of God. The Word of God needs to dwell richly within us. We need to understand the word, and we need to understand the promises of the word so that we become doers of the Word. And that's exactly what Jesus modeled to us in the wilderness temptations, is it not? When Satan came to him at his lowest point, we're talking about in his humanity, at his lowest point, there is no doubt that Jesus had the word implanted deep in his heart so that when Satan challenged him by twisting God's word, Jesus automatically responded with the truth. Because he embodied the truth. He is the truth. He says it, I am the way the truth, and the life. Now, sure, we're talking about the sinless Son of God. But we have to recognize that we are called to respond in exactly the same way. When when we do, we we can be certain that God will remain faithful. He will ensure that we navigate even the most difficult trials of life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, as you're going through difficult trials, do you truly believe? Do you truly believe that He will remain faithful? So, with that, let's read the text, Matthew four, one through eleven, as we study how our Lord handled these incredible tests. This is the Word of God, reading out of the Legacy Standard Bible. Chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone or on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him on or took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, or to him, all these things I will give to you, or I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Heavenly Father, just pray that you be with us this morning. Pray that this word, your word, would be preached to power, not because of anything about me, but because your word is powerful, and that I wouldn't take anything away from it, and that it would not return void. We know that that is your promise, in Christ's name, amen. Now, over the past two weeks, we've been studying Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and it's we have seen the events of this text come on the heels of, of Jesus' heavenly coronation in Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew 4.11, Matthew then presents Jesus as the tested and proven king by supplying six distinctives of his testing. His time of temptation first transpired in a distinct location. This is a re- This is a review. And As I have said, the temptation of Jesus occurred just after John baptized him in the Jordan River. It comes on the heels of Jesus' greatest triumph up to this point in his life. Uh, Mark 1.12 says, And immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. The Father declared Jesus to be the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit came upon him, empowering him for ministry. Then, according to Mark, immediately the Spirit led him into the wilderness. Now, it is important for us to understand the significance of Jesus' surroundings during this test. Jesus passed his test in the wilderness while the first Adam failed his test in paradise. Now, as I said last week, the first Adam was among the docile animals in a place of incredible comfort. He led Eve and his unborn children to live in the wilderness. The last Adam, though, Jesus was tested in the wilderness. Among the the wild beasts, he will lead his people into unimaginable paradise. This leads us to Matthew's second distinctive. This is the second time this has ever happened to me, by the way. That my voice just completely left me. Give me just a second. We had a long way to go if it's going to be this. The first time I was able to drink some hot water, so hopefully that and it helped it. So hopefully that's what'll happen here. The second distinctive that feels better. The second distinctive, Jesus' time of temptation tied with an old enemy. Look back at your text in Matthew 4 1. Notice that it says that Jesus would be would be tempted by was to be tempted by the devil. The devil, we know, is an old enemy. He tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. He is the same enemy who God said would be crushed by the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He's the same enemy who afflicted Job. He's the same enemy also who stood up against Israel and incited David to number Israel in 1 Chronicles uh, 21. He is the one whom the prophet Zechariah said uh, that accused Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3, 1 and 2. The uh, Christian, beloved brother and sister, uh, the devil, he is our enemy. He accuses us day, and he accuses us day and night before our God. In Revelation twelve ten, John says the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. The same enemy. He's an old enemy. This brings us to the third of Matthew's six distinctives, his time of temptation told of a new Adam. Look at verse 2. Uh, he had, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. Now, this, I would argue this text points to, this verse points to Jesus' humanity. He was fully human like you and I. He was not some demigod or, or offspring of a god. To think of him in that way cheapens him. Uh, no, he, Jesus was God incarnate who became a man. He lived as a man. He acted as a man. He was fully God and fully man. He was perfectly human. He became a man to be our great high priest. And, and in the words of the writer of Hebrews, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been attempted in all things like we. are yet without sin. But the point is, is that he was perfect humanity. This brings us to Matthew's fourth distinctive. This time of temptation tested a unique title. Look back at your text in verse three and again in verse six. Twice in this exchange, Satan says, if you are the son of God, If you are the Son of God. And as we have seen, this comes on the heels of Jesus' heavenly coronation where the Father declared, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So in these temptations, Satan challenged the Father's proclamation. He questioned this title, and he challenged Jesus to prove it in a sinful way. Yet God used this test to prove the truthfulness of that declaration. He truly is the Son of God. This leads us to the temptations themselves. Let's look at Matthew's next distinctive. This time of Jesus' time of temptation took into account three difficult challenges. Look at verse 3. Matthew writes, or the tempter says, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. We looked at this last week we started working through these challenges and as we began to study them last week i pointed out that satan uses the same strategy that he used in the garden with adam and eve he suddenly suddenly trust uh twist that is the god's word for his evil purposes in this first test which we saw last week week the question that that's at hand is whether or not jesus will care for himself instead of following the father's plan that's the question You see, Jesus had fasted for 40 days, and the text clearly says that he was hungry. So the the devil came and tempted him to use his power as the son of God to make bread from stone. Said another way, being the son of God, being son of God, surely means that you have the right and the privilege to care for yourself. Like I said, the devil takes God's word and he twists it for his purpose. Uh, he had been declared, the Lord had been declared, that the, the, the God had declared by His very word, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the devil takes that proclamation and he twists it. The question is, does God promise in His word to care for His own, for his own people without us having to send to get what we need? Yes, absolutely. I love the promises of Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10 says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will make you mighty. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you by my righteous, omnipotent hand. And, and clearly he's talking about Israel there, but I think we can apply that to each and every A person who is in Christ that we can be assured that we don't have to anxiously look about. That we can know that God is going to take care of us. That we don't have anything to fear because he will uphold us by his righteous omnipotent hand. Again, the devil twists God's promises and his word. So how does Jesus respond? He responds by trusting the Father's plan, and he responds by using Scripture to combat the devil's lies. Look down at Matthew 4, 4. But he answered and said, it is written, let me emphasize, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, which connects us back to Israel's wilderness warnings. You see, Adam had failed in the garden, and Israel had failed in the wilderness. Now that Jesus, the Messiah, would triumph over, the, over Satan's temptations where they had failed. He would trust the, father, the Father's promise to care for him. He would live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 31 through 33. It says, he says, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing for all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek for you, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But then he says this, but seek first His kingdom, his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The question is whether or not we're going to believe that our Lord did. At the lowest of lows, when he was hungry, had been fasting for 40 days, he was willing to say, but my Lord will feed me. My Father will feed me, that is. Let's look at the second of three challenges. Will Jesus test his Father's love? Look at your Bibles in verse, verse 5, Matthew 4, 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on, on the pinnacle of the temple. The, the devil had, te- had failed to tempt Jesus to use his power and privilege to care for himself. This, this would have been in rebellion to the Father's will. Now the Satan, Satan, that is, will tempt Jesus to test his Father's love for him. So according to the text, the devil took Jesus into Jerusalem and up onto the pinnacle of the temple. Now, we can't be sure... How he did this, but we can be certain that it happened. Now, this was probably the, the southeast corner of the temple wall. Some of you, I know, I've been there. Keith has been there. I don't know if anybody else has been there from here. But but there's at the southeast of the corner or the southeast corner of the temple wall uh, in that in that area, Herod had built a massive retaining wall that stood well above what is called the Kidron Valley. The, the pinnacle then may have referred to the roof that it was over Herod's portico that stood on top of that wall. Uh, Joseph Josephus, the Jewish historian, recorded that it was 450 feet from the roof of the temple there to the valley floor. So therefore, any fall from that location would have been absolutely fatal to anybody. According to early Christian tradition, persecutors Uh, martyr James in that same place. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus and the head of the church in Jerusalem, they threw him down from that same location. Now look at verse 6. He said, and he said to him, again we see this, this phrase, we've looked at it before, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, notice that the tempter says, if you are the Son of God. In this case, he challenges Jesus to prove it by showing that the Father would protect him. Now, in his first challenge, he twisted God's Word and God's promises, but he didn't specifically quote Scripture. This time, he steps up his game by quoting God's Word. But again, it's twisting it. In, that, in this exchange, he quotes Psalm 91, verses, or verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In effect, Satan is saying, if you're willing to trust the Father without acting on your own, go all the way. Do it. Really trust him. Prove to yourself and prove to everyone that the Father will protect you. After all, has He not promised that His angels will guard and protect you? Again, what we have to see is the subtle twist here. God has promised to care for His children. However, we are never to put Him to the test. Psalm 91 helps us recognize God's providential and sovereign protection of His children. We can be assured that nothing harmful will befall us outside of God's appointing it for His purposes. We can trust this promise even as we live in a sin-riddled world, in a fallen world. Nothing can harm you. Nothing can harm you outside that is outside of the Lord's will. Let me give you an analogy. Have you ever been around someone who's full of anxiety regarding their surroundings? Perhaps they fear someone will break into their home to steal something or even to harm them. Some, some of you may struggle with those fears. I, I, I can assure you I've struggled with some of those fears in my past. Psalm 91 is a beautiful psalm. It's a beautiful promise to know that we can trust in God's sovereign protection. We we can know that nothing can befall us unless the Lord ordains it to be so. But here's what's amazing. If someone breaks in and steals everything you own, if someone breaks in and, and harms you, if that happens... If you are in Christ, if you are one of God's people, we can be assured that it will be for our ultimate good. What? And we know that, those, that for those who love God, all things, work to, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That is a promise that you can take home. That is a promise that you can lie in your bed and believe. But this promise never allows us to test God's favor. For example, we are not to do things to prove that God loves us. He will protect His children, but it would be, as using the analogy, it would be foolish. And it would be sinful to move to the most dangerous neighborhood in your city and sleep with the doors unlocked. It would be foolish. Why test him in that way? Or leave your valuables on the front porch, right? When Angie and I went to seminary, I knew that God, we knew that God would protect us. But it would have been foolish to go without having a plan to care for our family, right? I mean, we just to show up and, you know, just, it, it would have been foolish. Back in Matthew 4 6 The devil thought he had trapped Jesus. He he's saying, if you're going to trust the Father's word, then go all the way. His word says he will protect his children. And let him fulfill his promises to you. If you are son of God, prove it. I bet you, I bet you won't even scrape a knee. This would have been a sensational way for Jesus to prove he was Son of God and Israel's Messiah. Actually, the Jews would have loved it. Uh, this is the type of proof they were waiting to see. They wanted to see uh, certain, these types of miraculous events. Uh, during those, those years, there were several men who made themselves out to be the Messiah. Some of them tried to prove their claims by performing miraculous deeds. And, of course, they all failed. Now, as I pointed out, this test actually points back to Israel's wilderness warning or wanderings. Turn in your Bibles real quickly to... Exodus seventeen I want to show you something. Exodus seventeen verse one. Then all the congregations of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages and the wil- uh, from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of Yahweh, and they camped at Repidim. Uh, and there was no water for the people to drink. Now, according to the text, they didn't have anything to drink. They, so, they, so what happened is they contended with Moses. Look at your text in, in verse 2. It, it ends up, Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you test Yahweh? The question is, why is this a test? Well, clearly, God didn't bring Israel out of Egypt to let them die of thirst in, in the wilderness. He had promised to, to deliver them from the hand of Pharaoh, yet, yet they had trusted in him and his provision. Therefore, they, they openly and bitterly complained about their situation. Now, the, the word translated contended has the idea of legal proceedings. It seems they were contending with Moses uh, through some sort of legal action, as if uh, bringing a lawsuit against him. Therefore, they were testing Yahweh. Now, what we have to recognize is this is a very, very serious situation. Look back at your text in verses 3 and 4. It it even came to, look at verse 4, it even came uh, to the point of, it said, Moses says, a little more and they will stone me. It seems that things had gotten so out of hand, they were ready to, to kill Moses. Again, what's happening is that they're testing God and his patience because they were, absolutely unwilling to trust his provision. Look at verse, verses 5 and 6. Then Moses, Yahweh said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of, the, of Israel, and take in your hand your staff, which you, uh, which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come. Or water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So, ultimately, Moses obeyed Yahweh, who provided water for the people despite their uh, their grumbling. Now, look at verse seven. Look at verse seven. So he named the place Massah and Meribah because of the contending of the sons of Israel. And because they tested Yahweh, now here's here's the actual way that they were testing him, saying, is Yahweh among us or not? So basically, if, if Yahweh provided water, he's proving to them that he's there, that he's actually among them. That's the test. That's how they're testing him. They wanted him to provide water for him to prove that he was actually there. A similar situation occurs in Numbers 20. In that case, Yahweh told Moses to speak to the rock instead of striking it, but Moses, in his anger, struck the the rock twice. Now, hopefully, here's the point. Hopefully, you can see the parallels between these accounts of Israel and how Jesus responded in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Back in Matthew 4, Satan tempted Jesus to prove that the Father would care for him. He tempted Jesus to respond by testing the Father in the same way Israel responded in the wilderness to to test him. So then, how does Jesus respond? How does he respond? Look back at verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, Matthew 4, verse 7. And Jesus says this Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So, Jesus responds to Satan by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. Now, in that text, Moses says, you shall not put Yahweh your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Direct connection. Ding, 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 right? Here's the connection to Israel's wanderings. We see that that Jesus is strengthening that connection by quoting Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy 6, where he says, don't test God as they tested him with, in Messiah with the water, right? So, what do we learn from this? Well, we are to trust that our Lord will provide for us and he will protect us but we are not to put him to the test by forcing him to care for us in the way that we expect him to. Does that make sense? He will care for you, and he will will do it in his due time, but we are not to put him to the test by forcing him to do that or to care for us in the way that we expect him to. So if we jump off the temple... We're forcing him to protect us in a way that we expect. That's putting him to test. And that's what Satan was trying to get him to do. He will care for you. He does care for you. But he will do it in his own way and in his own timing, according to his sovereign hands. And when you take matters into your own hands and try to force God to act, then you are testing him. And scripture is clear. We are to believe God's promises of provision and we are to treat Him as holy. We are never to contend with Him by questioning His care for us. Now, having said that, there are times when we may feel that God is not there, right? We struggle to trust in Him. But God's word is absolutely clear in those times of doubt. And there is no doubt in my mind that that many of you have had those times of doubt, if not all of you, because I know I have. In those times of doubt, you are to confess your concerns, you are to confess your doubts, but you need to do it humbly and with reverence, knowing that he will give you the answers that you need in his own way and in his own timing. And it will be good. It will be very good. And it will, it will be the best thing that you would ever need. And it will be the best thing you could ever desire. And it will be uh, glorifying to Him. Some of you may be even now going through times of doubt and fear. Perhaps it's a, a health concern or something going on in your family. Maybe it's financial problems. God calls for you to trust for His provision, which will come at the perfect moment. I promise you it will. I promise you it will because God's Word says it, but I can also promise you because I've lived it. But more than that, because God's Word says it, right? It's exactly what we see our Lord do here in Matthew 4, 7. In the words of John MacArthur, no matter how noble and important we may think our reasons are, to test God is to doubt God, and to doubt God is not to trust Him, and not to trust Him is sin. Now again, I I want to tell you, this is end quote, but I do want to tell you, if there are going to be times of doubt, you're going to have times of doubt. Confess those times. Confess your doubt. Trust in His provision. Treat Him as holy. He will care for you. So let's look at the third and final challenge. Will Jesus try to rule the world outside of the Father's plan? Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took Him to a very high mountain and showed Him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Notice, Notice we are not told where this mountain is located. I would take this as a a supernatural vision that allowed Jesus and Satan to see all the kingdoms of the world throughout history. Surely they saw the glories of Egypt with its pyramids and temples and libraries and great treasures. Surely they saw the vast Roman Empire that spanned the known earth. Surely they saw great empires that that history has scarcely recorded. Uh, One cannot fathom the glory of all they saw in those moments. As I was writing this sermon, I was thinking of how easily I I can fall for even little things. Can you imagine being tempted by all the kingdoms and all the wealth this world has ever produced? (laughs) My my wife will laugh. I drool every time I see a Toyota Tacoma. (laughs) I don't know why. I like them. But as we consider this we need to understand that God has temporarily allowed Satan to rule this world. In, in Ephesians 2.2, 2, it says that, that he is the ruler of the power of the air. And in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Uh, in his last night, before going to the cross, Jesus said to his followers that the ruler of the world is coming, speaking of Satan. But here's what we have to understand. Satan is not the ultimate authority in the world. In the parallel account in Luke 4:6 he tells the, the devil tells another partial truth. He says he says I will give you all this dominion and glory and its glory for it has been handed over to me. Well, who gave it to him? Who gave it to him? God did. God did. In his sovereignty, God considered it wise to give Satan power in this world for God's good purposes. As part of the curse God placed on the the world after the fall of Adam and Eve, he gave Satan power over this world. But here's what we have to see and what we have to recognize. He doesn't have ultimate power. God still holds the ultimate power. Satan cannot act outside of the sovereign plan of our Lord. We don't believe in dualism. Dualism, meaning we don't believe there's two powerful beings that are equal, God and Satan, fighting it out in some sort of death match. And we don't know who's going to win. No, we don't believe that. God is God, there is no other God but Him. Satan's not God, nor does he even approach God in power. You see, all of Satan's power is directly by permission. He has no autonomy, none. He cannot do anything unless God permits it for his infinitely wise purposes. But this doesn't keep Satan from being deluded. I mean, he's delusional, right? Look at your text in verse 9. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. So Jesus promises to give the whole world, give him the whole world if he's willing to, to fall down and worship him. Instead of, here's what we have to understand. Instead of enduring the difficult, the incredibly difficult and painful road that led to the brutality of a Roman cross instead of enduring the unimaginable pain of the Father's wrath, instead of waiting until all his enemies have been made subject, he could have shortcutted that all and just taken it then. Except that was a lie, right? So Satan promises to give everything to him. He can rule the world now, yet this power and authority was not ultimately Satan's to give. That is, unless Jesus failed the test. But that was a non-starter. He would never fail, right? The, the devil was delusional to think that he could give the world to Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to this challenge? But we have to think of this in, in Jesus' humanity, right? He, he responded in these ways as a man. 100% man, 100% God, right? Look at verse 10. This is how he responds. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, Jesus responds by telling Satan to be gone. It is enough. Then he quotes Deuteronomy yet again. And this time, he quotes up, sums up, that is, Deuteronomy 6, 13-16. He sums it up. Now, here's what's amazing. Amazingly, Satan obeyed Jesus' rebuke because Satan had no other choice. You see, Jesus' rebuke actually proved that he is the Son of God. Said another way, the Son of God had commanded him to leave, and he had no choice but to leave. John MacArthur says it this way, If the Son of God would not compromise even the most or even the least important truth in the universe, he surely would not compromise the greatest that God and God alone is to be worshiped and served. Jesus had heard enough from the enemy, so he told him to be gone. It's amazing to consider that as the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, Jesus actually owns all the kingdoms of the world, even if Satan has been given temporary control of them. But that won't last. Daniel 7 describes one like a son of man approaching the Ancient of Days. He was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Beloved, the son of man that, it, that approached the ancient of days is none other than the Lord Jesus. I mean, this stuff ought to excite you as a Christian. John describes uh, the Lamb of God who is the lion uh, that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. He's the one who approached the Ancient of Days. He's the one who gets the title deed of the earth. And how did he overcome? He overcame by following the Father's plan. He did not regard... Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, our Lord refused to bow to Satan, but he did not refuse to empty himself to take on the form of a slave, and to be made in the likeness of men. He did not shrink back from humbling himself. He did not shrink back from becoming obedient to the point of death. He did not shrink back from dying on a cross, a horrific death on a cross. He took upon himself the wrath of the Father for our sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. No, he would not kneel to Satan, but we will kneel to him. As a matter of fact, every knee will bow to him. Philippians 2, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven And on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it will happen exactly as the Father planned because the Lord Jesus was unwilling to capitulate. He was unwilling to bow to to anyone other than the Father. Christian, the enemy of your souls always promises more than he can deliver. He will try to suggest that everything in this world can be ours. We can be successful in the world of business. We can drive the nicest cars. We can live in the best of neighborhoods. We can thrive in the world of men's politics. He promises that politics are the, answers to, are the answer to our woes. We can be famous. Everyone can know our name. We can have whatever our heart desires. If only we would bow our knee to Him. That's the promise. I'm currently reading... The biography of Lyndon Baines Johnson, uh, as I go through it, I'm just amazed and flabbergasted at the things that he and others would do to get to the top. Lying, cheating, stealing. You see, that's the way of this world. That's the way of this world. That's Satan's way. Our Lord would not, and he did not, fall for it. And I pray that you wouldn't fall for it either because we have our Lord as the example. Let's briefly look at Matthew's final distinction. Jesus' time of temptation is a tale of amazing triumph. Well, ultimately, we've already seen this, so it goes really quickly. Look at Matthew 4.11. The devil left him, right? If we, James says if we resist the devil, he will flee. James 4.7. So Satan schemes failed in dramatic fashion he was utterly unable to cause Jesus to sin against the father in the words of John MacArthur again Jesus's responses to the tempter were in essence I will trust the father I will not presume on his word and I will not circumvent his will I will take the father's good gifts from the father's own hand in the father's own way and in the father's own time thus the king was accredited by the severest of tests end quote. Thus the angels came and ministered to him. Now we can't be certain how they did this, but they served him as the son of God. Now as we consider these three temptations, I want you to consider how they match temptations you may have in your own life. You may be tempted to care for yourself. You may be tempted to solve your own problems. You may have designs to meet your needs in your own power without trusting God's kind provision, or you may be tempted to put yourself in danger's way, harm's way, expecting God's provision for you. Satan wants us to sinfully take advantage of God's provision, or he may show you all the world and try to get you to go for it. Uh, He may appeal to your fleshly ambitions to try to get you to take advantage of your own power. Well, the Apostle John sums up these temptations in 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And I love the next verse in verse 17. This is a verse that we can remember as Christians. And the world is passing away. And also its lust. But here's the promise. The one who does the will of God abides forever. That's the promise. Friends, I pray that you will resist the devil and he will flee far away from you and that you will flee, you will flee this evil world system. We have the promise that if we flee it, if we, if we abide in, in Christ, if we abide in Christ, he will care for us. He will care.